Hello, and welcome to Politics, Cinema, and Liberation in Burkina Faso, brought to you by the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at the Ohio State University, and the magazine, Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. My name is Nick Breifogel. I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. On August 4th, 1983, Captain Thomas Sankara led a coalition of radical military officers, communist activists, labor leaders, and militant students to overtake the government of the Republic of Upper Volta. Almost immediately following the coup, almost immediately following the coup's success, the small West African country, renamed Burkina Faso, or Land of the Dignified People, gained international attention as it charted a new path towards social, economic, cultural, and political development based on its people's needs rather than on external pressures and Cold War politics. Today, we're privileged to welcome Dr. James Genova, who will explore the revolutionary government's rise and fall and spotlight the revolution's lasting influence throughout Africa and the world. He'll discuss one of the revolution's most enduring and significant aspects, its promotion of film as a vehicle for raising the people's consciousness, inspiring their efforts at social transformation, and articulating a new self-generated image of Africa and Africans. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. James E. Genova is Professor of History and Film Studies at The Ohio State University, Marion. He's the author of three books on African history, including most recently, Making New People, Politics, Cinema, and Liberation in Burkina Faso, 1983 to 1987, which serves as the foundation of his discussion today. His research integrates the fields of African history, film theory, globalization, revolutionary movements and ideologies, imperialism and decolonization, national liberation, as well as social group formation. Genova earned his PhD from Stony Brook University in 2000, where his dissertation was awarded the prize for best doctoral thesis. He teaches courses in African history, war and conflict, African cinema, world history, genocide, European history, and revolution in Africa. It's a wide range of courses. Um, with that introduction, let me mention the plan. Uh, so Professor Genova uh, will begin with a presentation on Burkina Faso in the 1980s after the revolution. And then he'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function, which is at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. And then I'll uh, read those questions uh, to him. We'll do our best to answer as many questions uh, as we can in the time that we have. We'd also like to take a moment uh, to acknowledge that the land that the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandot, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. We want to honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical context that have and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of this land. Now, let me pass you over to Professor James Genova, who will take us on an exploration of politics, cinema, and liberation in Burkina Faso. Over to you, Professor Genova. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, and good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me as your invited guest for this webinar on my most recent book, Making New People, Politics, Cinema, and Liberation in Burkina Faso, 1983 to 1987. I would like to thank Nick Breifogel for extending the invitation to participate in this event, and I look forward to your questions and discussion at the end of the presentation. The book is a history of Burkina Faso's remarkable revolution from 1983 to 1987, led by Thomas Sankara. It focuses on the government's cultural politics and its use of cinema as a mechanism for social change. The revolutionary government was one of the earliest in the world to identify climate change debt, and gender inequality as inhibitors to social development. 
However, one of the most enduring and significant aspects of the democratic and popular revolution, as it was called, was its promotion of film as a vehicle for raising people's consciousness, inspiring their efforts at social transformation, and creating a new self-generated image of Africa and the African. That emphasis fit with the vision of the pioneer generation of African filmmakers of the 1960s, who sought the cooperation of African governments to transform their societies and overcome the negative legacies of colonial rule. Today's talk will provide a brief background to the revolution, an overview of some of its policies and achievements, and then discuss its legacy. Upper Volta, today Burkina Faso, became independent from France on 5 August 1960. The territory was used as a labor reservoir uh, by the French, sending workers to other colonies in the region. That circumstance contributed to the rise of a militant organized working class on the road to independence. The workers' movement contributed to the overthrow of the country's first president, Maurice Yamiogo, on 3 January 1966, and the installation of a military government under Colonel Sangule Lamizana, who remained in power until 1980. Initially, the new regime enjoyed some popular support. It also gained legitimacy among nationalists and radicals, especially among filmmakers, when it got into a fight with French-based monopoly film distribution companies leading to the nationalization of the theater infrastructure in 1970. Moreover, in 1969, Upper Volta hosted the first African film festival, what Lamizana institutionalized as FESPACO, the Pan-African Film and Television Festival of Ouagadougou in 1972. However, by the early 1970s, worsening economic conditions and mounting corruption eroded support for La Mizana and radicalized the opposition. Throughout the 1970s, Upper Volta borrowed money from the International Monetary Fund and Western banks, especially from France, with which the country was tied through a cooperation agreement signed at independence. The Sahara Desert continued its relentless advance, jeopardizing the livelihoods of farmers in the North and causing increased migration to the cities and Southern regions that were ill-equipped to handle the expanded population. Global warming also resulted in increased and unpredictable rainfall in the South that led to catastrophic flooding. The government focused on maintaining political stability through managing the civilian politicians and keeping the military loyal. As a result, Upper Volta did not develop economically and could not meet the challenges of inflation, debt, and climate change. In 1973, a new movement emerged called LIPAD, the Patriotic League for Development. It was tied to the underground communist party known as the African Independence Party or PAI. And in 1974, a communist-led trade union federation was formed known as the CSV. In addition, Upper Volta fought a war with neighboring Mali in November to December, 1974, over that tiny stretch of territory highlighted in red uh, on the map. It was during that conflict that Thomas Sankara became a hero to his troops for calling out the corruption that deprived them of decent living conditions, adequate supplies, and appropriate training. He insisted that the troops see themselves as part of the people and work with the civilians to help them, not oppress them. During that conflict, Sankara became friends with Blaise Compiore, who served the young, uh, shared the young officer's ideas about making the military an instrument of social development in support of the people. Jean-Baptiste Bukhari Lengani and Henri Zongo joined with Sankara and Compiore to form the Communist Officers Rally, or ROC, which was a core of communist military officers who planned to bore from within the military ally with radical civilian movements like the PAI and seize power. In addition, in 1977, radical students founded a Maoist group that gave rise to the PCRV or Voltaic Revolutionary Communist Party in 1978 and the ULC or Union of Communist Struggle 
1979. In 1980, La Mizana's government was overthrown by right-wing military officers led by Colonel Cezerbo. In 1982, another group of officers connected to the underground radical left toppled Cezerbo's regime. The revolutionary officers around Thomas Sankara survived the repression of Cezerbo by maintaining outward military discipline. This involved Sankara's decision to become the Minister of Information in the government, which gave him control over the media. He brought his collaborators in the underground revolutionary movement into public office and insisted on freedom for the journalists under his supervision to investigate corruption, which technically fit with Cezerbo's justification for the coup against Lamizana. Sankara used inquiries into fiscal scandals to undermine the government. Cezerbo ordered the reports suppressed. This precipitated Sankara's public resignation in April 1982 over the radio during a meeting to prepare for the 1983 Pespaco. That move enhanced Sankara's popularity, and when the regime imprisoned him, Sankara became a hero to the cause of justice and liberty. Sankara's resignation put him on the radar of the Organization of African Filmmakers, or FEPASI. In 1969, African filmmakers identified alienation sustained by colonialism as an inhibitor to social development and called for a cultural revolution to defeat imperialism and achieve true liberation. Following Fapasi's founding in 1970, the group helped to organize the meeting of third world filmmakers in Algiers, Algeria from 5 to 14 December, 1973, where they focused on devising strategies to combat imperialism and neocolonialism and declared that action must be taken to seize from imperialism the means to influence ideologically. This implies control by the people state of all cultural activities and in respect to cinema, nationalization in the interest of the masses of people of production, distribution, and commercialization. In 1975, Fapasi convened its second Congress in Algiers, Algeria, and produced the Algiers Charter on African Cinema. The Algiers Charter asserted that cultural domination which is all the more dangerous for being insidious, imposes on our people models of behavior and systems of values whose essential function is to buttress the ideological and economic ascendancy of the imperialist powers. The filmmakers declared that cinema has a vital part to play in the liberation struggle because it is a means of education, information, and consciousness raising, as well as a stimulus to creativity. The state, the charter declared, must take the leading role in building a national cinema free of the shackles of censorship or any other form of coercion, likely to diminish the filmmakers' creative scope and the democratic and responsible exercise of their profession. The economic crisis of the late 1970s and early 1980s contributed to a more defensive tone struck by Fapasi at its third Congress in Niamey, Niger, from 1 to 4 March 1982. That produced the Niamey Manifesto. They called for partnership with African governments in the realization of filmmakers' creative works. Moreover, Fapasi asked its members to tamp down some of the criticism directed at those upon whom they relied for their craft. It concluded that filmmakers should maintain a sense of responsibility and morality in dealing with their governments and others they have dealings with. The manifesto asserted there cannot be any viable cinema without the involvement of African states, and that meeting took place one month before Sankara's resignation. Following the coup that overthrew, overthrew Cezerbo, the Revolutionary Military Organization, or OMR, which was formerly the ROC, had Sankara made prime minister in January 1983. He was co-equal with the country's president, Jean-Baptiste Guadriago, who was a moderate military officer chosen as a compromise between left and right. During Sankara's tenure as prime minister, he hosted the 1983 FESPACO, solidifying his connection with the filmmakers and demonstrating his commitment to the building of a robust African cinema. Moreover, he traveled extensively, making contacts with Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and attended the non meeting of non-aligned states where he developed friendships with progressive leaders, 
most importantly, Fidel Castro of Cuba. Those relationships made conservatives in the government nervous and raised anxieties in France and the United States. The French government plotted with right-wing officers within the government and had Sankara and his allies in the OMR removed from office and imprisoned on 17 May, 1983. The people rallied to Sankara's defense through mass demonstrations and the revolutionary groups united into a formidable coalition. On 4 August, 1983, the revolutionaries toppled the government and installed the Democratic and Popular Revolution led by the National Council of the Revolution, or CNR. At 10 p.m. on 4 August, 1983, the national radio of Upper Volta went on the air with a special announcement read by President Thomas Sankara in the uniform of a commando, red beret on his head, and Kalishnikov in his hand. Sankara said the events of 17 May, 1983 were conducted by reactionary conservative forces who know to do nothing other than serve the interests of the enemies of the people, the interests of foreign domination of neo-colonialism. The 33-year-old captain continued, to realize the objectives of the honor, the dignity, the true independence and progress for Upper Volta and for its people, the current movement of Voltaic Armed Forces constitute this day, 4 August 1983, the National Council of the Revolution. He called on the people of Upper Volta to mobilize in active and vigilant support of the revolution in the form of Committees for the Defense of the Revolution, or CDR. Sankara continued, the fundamental reason and objective of the National Council of the Revolution is the defense of the interests of the Voltaic people, the realization of their profound aspirations for liberty, true independence, and economic and social progress. Two months later, on 2 October 1983, the CNR issued its Statement of Principles, called the Discourse of Political Orientation, or DOP. The DOP declared that the goal of the CNR is to build a new society freed from social injustice, freed from the domination of and secular exploitation of international imperialism. The imperialist capitalist system has maintained Upper Volta in a situation of poverty and economic and cultural backwardness. It cited the external debt, inflation, and lack of economic development as intended results of the neo-colonial imperialist system. For the people, this pushed them towards a catastrophe. The immediate tasks were the liquidation of imperialist domination and exploitation, and the purging of all obstacles from the countryside, economic and cultural, which maintain it in a backward state. The CDR, would be where people learn to be revolutionaries and lead to the creation of new people. The DOP outlined three areas of focus. These were the military, the place of women, and economic growth. The military's role was redefined as a participant in national production by working with the people to achieve their needs, changing each soldier into a militant revolution. Regarding women, the declaration called for breaking the domination of men over women, most blatantly sustained by traditional beliefs and forms of social organization. It states, this is not an act of charity or a humanist gesture to speak of the emancipation of women. It is a fundamental necessity for the triumph of the revolution. This entailed a radical change of mentalities among men and women. This should not be understood as a mechanical equality between men and women according to the DOP. Finally, in the area of economics, the statement called for an independent, self-sufficient, and planned economy in the service of a democratic and popular society. The programs outlined in the DOP included agrarian reform, administrative changes, educational innovation, and cultural edification. The result would be the formation of a new culture. Of note in the DOP was the primacy given to culture. It described how the colonial school was substituted by a neo-colonial school that pursued the same goals of the alienation of children from their country and the reproduction of a society essentially at the service of the imperialist interests. One of the CNR's main tasks was to destroy the old order and put in its place a society of a new type. The statement proclaimed as a central objective, the creation of a new voltaic with an exemplary morality and social comportment 
that inspires admiration and the confidence of the masses. Neo-colonial domination has placed in our society a rotting such that we must use these next years to purify it. The democratic and popular revolution will create the propitious conditions for the hatching of a new culture. Over the next four years, the revolutionary government implemented far-reaching reforms and put the newly renamed Burkina Faso well ahead of most other countries in the world on some of the most critical issues facing humanity. In 1984, the CNR launched a popular plan for development that ran for 15 months. The PPD resulted in the construction of 334 schools, 284 dispensaries and maternity wards, 78 pharmacies, 25 grocery stores, 553 apartment buildings and lodgings, 258 water reservoirs, and 962 wells and boreholes. According to World Bank figures, the volume of stockpiled water went from 8.7 million tons in 1983 to 302.4 million tons in 1986. The state provided funds for irrigation programs, dam construction, and engaged in a vast construction program to renovate and expand the transportation sector. The latter involved road and railroad construction on a massive scale throughout 1985, the centerpiece of which was the Battle of the Rail, launched on 1 February 1985. The CNR was clear that economic development had to be done in a way that also combated the effects of climate change. When the CNR nationalized the land and resources of the country in August 1984, it included the provision that all projects of social and economic development at the national or local level must of necessity include a program of reforestation in the form of planting groves of trees, plantations, green spaces, or public gardens. The crisis was urgent, since at the time of the revolution, the desert was advancing by 10 kilometers a year. Furthermore, the CNR announced on 1 January 1985, the beginning of a reforestation program centered in the north, but designed to encompass all Burkina Faso. By December 1985, well over 10 million trees had been planted. In addition, the CNR announced on 22 May 1985 the three struggles, which were the fight against brush fires, indiscriminate animal herding, and excessive logging. CDR were mobilized to combat those practices by convincing the people that they were not only harmful to the environment, but counterproductive for social and economic development. According to the World Bank, the results and developments of the outcome of the PPD by December 1985 were, in their words, spectacular. Increased road density and rail infrastructure networks, a booming textile industry through processing of domestically produced cotton, and a growing market share of cotton fabric for local producers. Food self-sufficiency through sensible agricultural policy. Wheat production went from 1,700 kilograms per hectare to 3,800 kilograms per hectare. Between 1983 and 1986, cereal production rose by a spectacular 75%. While never a major contributor to carbon dioxide emissions, the setting of brush fires and other aspects of deforestation added to the general erosion, climate stability, as well as long-term economic sustainability for Burkina Faso. In 1983, the World Bank measured the country's carbon dioxide emissions at 0.081 metric tons per capita, a figure that had grown virtually every year since independence in 1960, when it was 0.009 metric tons per capita. By 1986, the figure had fallen to 0.061 metric tons per capita, before rising slightly in 1987 to 0.064 metric tons per capita. And I checked the most recent numbers today, Burkina Faso is 0.2 metric tons per capita. By comparison, the United States is 14.7 metric tons per capita. Uh, Russia, 11.8, China, 7.6, France, 4.5. 4 so by comparison. The revolutionary government managed to lower carbon dioxide emissions while simultaneously vastly expanding agricultural productivity and manufacturing 
even as the population increased from 7.3 million in 1983 to 8.1 million in 1987, an 11% increase. In 1986, the government mandated the construction of parks and gardens in every village. The CNR aimed to create a giant green belt to block the root of the desert. Sankara argued that saving the planet was linked to the development of all societies. Sankara said, since 4 August 1983, water, trees, and lives, if not survival itself, have been fundamental and sacred elements in all action taken by the National Council of the Revolution, which leads Burkina Faso. Sankara also asserted that the vaccination and literacy campaigns of the PPD aided the fight against climate change, since they improved the health and education of the population, equipping the people to be more productive contributors to the struggle for a green Burkina. Sankara announced that from 10 February to 20 March 1986, more than 35,000 peasants will take intensive basic courses on the subjects of economic management and environmental organization and maintenance. However, Burkina Faso's efforts would fail if the rest of the world did not do its part. Sankara proclaimed, we are not against progress, but we do not want progress that is anarchic and criminally neglects the rights of others. He proposed that governments take 1% of the money currently being invested in projects to search for life on other planets and direct it toward financing projects to save trees and lives. The CNR leader said, our struggle for the trees and forests is first and foremost a democratic and popular struggle. It is above all a struggle against imperialism. Sankara explained that for the Burkinabi people, the fight against the advance of the desert poses a question of justice and equity. The DOP highlighted the double exploitation of women as a specific form of oppression. They suffered from the exploitation that much of humanity experiences, but also faced distinct repression at the hands of men because of their being women. The goal of the democratic and popular revolution was to create the conditions for women's real emancipation. The CNR abolished forced marriage, female circumcision, established a minimum age for marriage, and recognized the right of women to inherit property. Emphasis was placed on encouraging girls' attendance in school, and all health campaigns had female-specific dimensions. Within the CDR, a direction for women's mobilization and participation, or DMOF, formed that promoted programs around family planning and sex education, especially in rural Burkina Faso. The CNR mandated that government institutions have minimal requirements for the number of women in leadership positions, and this extended to the CDR, economic development programs, education campaigns, and healthcare. The CNR recognized International Women's Day, 8 March, as a holiday. And on 22 September 1984, the CNR decreed men had to do all the shopping and tasks usually consigned to women in what it called the Day of Husbands to the Market. From 1 to 8 March 1985, the CNR sponsored a conference of women, at which over 3,000 delegates from across Burkina Faso took part. That was followed on 19 September 1985 by founding the Union of Burkinabi Women, or UFB. On 8 March 1987, International Women's Day, Sankara declared, starting now, the men and women of Burkina Faso should profoundly change their image of themselves, for they are part of a society that is not only establishing new social relations, but is also provoking a cultural transformation, upsetting the relations of authority between men and women, and forcing each to rethink the nature of both. The Burkinabi president stated, women's emancipation is at the heart of the question of humanity itself. The CNR leader served notice that every ministry and administrative committee would be assessed according to their success in implementing the goal that justice be done to women. The UFB needed to carry out vast political and ideological educational campaigns. Sankara asserted, comrades, only the revolutionary transformation of our society can create the conditions for your liberation. You are dominated by both imperialism and by men. There is no true social revolution without the liberation of women, and this must be accomplished without resorting to bureaucratic means. The revolutionary government appointed women to lead its healthcare campaigns, including Operation Vaccine Commando, which ran from 25 November to 10 December 1984. 
The government engaged CDR throughout the country to fully immunize all children and newborns in 15 days. Doctors and nurses fanned out across the country, organized through the local CDR. And within those 15 days, over 2.5 million children from newborns to age 14 received vaccinations for measles, cerebral spinal meningitis, and yellow fever. UNICEF representatives marveled at the efficiency and success of the operation. The official report stated, I was profoundly impressed by the engagement that the government displayed on the occasion of this campaign, as well as the mobilization of the community. The CNR constructed primary care clinics throughout the country with the goal of having one in every village. The CDR built pharmacies in every province as part of the PPD. The state also subsidized the cost of medication. In 1983, life expectancy in Burkina Faso was 48.5. By 1986, the figure rose to 49.5. In infant mortality, Burkina Faso had a rate of over 119 deaths per 1,000 live births in 1983, among the highest levels in the world. That dropped to around 111 per 1,000 live births by 1987. On 4 October 1984, the 34-year-old President Sankara addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations. Dressed in military fatigues and wearing his trademark red beret with gold star, Sankara said, I bring the fraternal greetings of a country covering 274,000 square kilometers, where 7 million men, women, and children refuse henceforth to die of ignorance, hunger, and thirst, even though they are not yet able to have a real life after a quarter of a century as a sovereign state represented here at the United Nations. Sankara explained the urgent need for a break with the established global order to realize true development for the impoverished parts of the world. On 29 July 1987, Sankara spoke at the conference of the Organization of African Unity, today the African Union, in Ethiopia on the problem of debt. Sankara said, the debt has nothing to do with us. That is why we cannot pay it. The debt enabled the reconquest of Africa and turned its people into a financial slave. The CNR leader told the gathering that the lender won't die if Africans refuse to pay the debt. However, if we do pay, we are the ones who will die. Sankara called for the OAU to form a united front against the debt. Critical to the realization of all of the revolution's goals was the transformation of the person through a cultural revolution at the heart of which was the cinema. The 9th Fespacro, 23 February to 2 March, 1985, came at a critical moment in the history of African cinema. The posse was in crisis and barely functioned. So at the 1985 Fespacro, the CNR invited Fepasi to relocate to Ouagadougou. During the festival, Fepasi convened its third Congress, at which the Burkinabi filmmaker Gaston Kabore became its general secretary. He explained, my political choice forces me to take an active part in the struggle to restore the personality and dignity of the African and Burkinabi people. In my opinion, cinema has a great role to play as a medium to promote our development policies and to rehabilitate our culture. The Burkinabi filmmaker said, and in an Africa that is trying to grapple with the problems of development, African cinemas are indispensable as foreign films, which are shown in our theaters, contribute to keeping the African peoples in a state of subjugation. Gabori and his associates in Fapasi put their rhetoric to action on 28 February 1985, when the organization joined the Battle of the Rail by constructing rail track. It's actually a picture of the filmmakers there laying down rail track. Fapasi declared, we African cineas, reunited for the third Congress of Fapasi and the ninth Vespaco, decided unanimously to participate in the Battle of the Rail. By this act, we wish to express our solidarity with the Burkinabi people in its struggle for development. A major innovation at the 1985 Vespaco was the introduction of themes, which was, at this one, cinema and people's liberation. At the 19, uh, 1985 Vespaco, there was a retrospective on Algerian war ethics and on Latin and Central American third cinema films. There were also anti-apartheid films. Workshops and demonstrations against racism, imperialism, and apartheid occurred every day. 
Sankara was conspicuous at film screenings, workshops, press conferences, and award ceremonies. He also personally presented the grand prize at the 1985 FISPAC. As Sankara told reporters on 4 March 1985, the purification of the cinema is a requirement of our struggle. We must conquer our screens, reconquer our culture to spread the messages that are going to serve the people's interests. Cultural achievement is part of the overall strategy of the revolution. During the festivities, the CNR staged a March of the Militants on 24 February 1985 to demonstrate the link between Africa's premier film festival and the democratic and popular revolution. The theme of the 10th Fespaco, 21 to 28 February 1987, was cinema and cultural identity. One filmmaker highlighted the cultural combat characteristic of the atmosphere at the 1987 Fespaco. He writes, at Fespaco in the beginning was the cinema, the art of the present, and now around the film its essential component is the cultural struggle for the rebirth of African civilization. This is the message of Burkina Faso, that will surely meet all the African and progressive countries of the world and to which they cannot fail to respond. The 10th Pespaco was noted for three major developments. One was the inauguration of a project to create an African-controlled distribution network for the continent's films. As Sankara said at Pespaco, whoever controls distribution controls the cinema. The second was the attention paid to oral cultures and tradition. The festival included a colloquium on oral tradition. The objective was to bring together cultural workers to make their work relevant with regard to reflecting the African reality and be at the service of development. Sankara hosted a meeting of representatives from African television, radio, and filmmakers in the presidential palace, where he explained that investment in the expansion of television across the continent was a matter of achieving economic independence. By engaging in those collaborative enterprises, they would contribute to teaching the people how to love and make art. Sankara explained that cinema is an elegant and pleasant way to develop among African peoples the attitudes we want for the construction of our happiness in Africa. However, the Burkinabi leader cautioned, a people is never great when they are not aware of the culture, and the culture of a people does not exist so long as they themselves cannot amplify together something beautiful. Finally, the Burkinabi president explained, cinema, an alliance between sound and image is for us a useful vector in Africa because we are a culture of orality. But cinema should not be the means that distills indirectly or in a malicious manner messages of counter-revolutionary propaganda. Vespaco 1987's emphasis on cultural identity augmented a trend in African cinematic production. African filmmakers increasingly explored historical events to reclaim the past and project a vision of African heroic resistance against imperialist oppression. That history was also presented from the perspective of rural traditions and the lives of peasants as they struggled against exploitation while grappling with their place in the modern world. The third major innovation at FESPAC of 1987 was its global emphasis through the addition of new categories and prizes. Window on the World showcased films from outside Africa and marked the internationalization of FESPAC. In 1987, Fepasi created the category of diaspora, the winner of which was awarded the Paul Robeson Prize. In his speech on the revolution's fourth anniversary, 4 August 1987, Sankara stated that the revolution has required that the mentality of the Burkinabi people cease being a reproduction of the culturally alienated and politically servile individual created to perpetuate imperialist domination in the newly independent countries. We need a new people. The formation of those new unalienated subjects would further the collective struggle of humanity. Film was at the center of that project. With the CNR in power, FESPACO became a different kind of event. The 1985 FESPACO was a veritable anti-imperialist summit. Representatives from throughout the world became part of the event, signaling its internationalization. The festival became a space of cultural exchange that generated agreements to share products, ideas, and even people on a continual basis. The theme of the 10th Fespaco in 1987, Cinema and Cultural Identity, deepened the imbrication of African film practices with the project of personal and social transformation at the core of the revolution. 
the introduction of themes, and the specific ones chosen for the 1985 and 1987 Paspacos mark the revolution's commitment to fulfilling one of the main aspirations of African filmmakers that dated to the decolonization era, which was the necessity for Africans to appropriate for themselves the means of self-expression, raise consciousness, and create their own culture freed from imperialism. Despite the CNR's violent overthrow in 1987, the changes to African cinema persisted as evidenced in the transformed nature of Vespaco and the films produced by the continent's directors. In terms of style and content, a new wave of African cinema emerged in which the humanistic and the universalist interweave with the ancient and the present as part of a conscious effort to internationalize Black African cinema to gain larger audiences. The Sankara government challenged the strictures of the IMF, World Bank, and Western governments that used debt as an instrument of control and manipulation of people around the world. Those concerns found expression through the films by prominent African directors in the 1990s and 21st century. Recognition of the enduring influence of the Burkinabi revolution on African cinema had to await Campeore's removal from power in October 2014. The next month, in November 2014, the African Directors and Producers Guild, GARP, created the pre Thomas Sankara. It was awarded for the first time on 6 March 2015. The award assisted in the production of a short film that demonstrates dramatic creativity, narrative talent, technical excellence, and a positive representation of the Pan-African imagination. Four years later, at the 2019 FESPACO, the African filmmakers marked the festival's 50th anniversary by declaring that year's theme to be a reprise of the 1985 FESPACO's focus on cinema and people's liberation. In addition, the event included the unveiling of a statue of Sankara. The Burkinabi Revolution was one of the most remarkable events in modern African history, during which Burkina Faso became a notable player on the world stage. Its policies and practices continue to fire the passion of and provide inspiration to millions of people in Burkina Faso, across Africa, and around the world, nearly 40 years after its violent end. Thank you. Thank you so very much for that that fascinating talk. Uh, I um, we're now at a point in 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 the program today where anyone who's in the audience, please feel free to ask a question. Uh, to do so, uh, what you'll need to do is to kind of type your question into the Q and A. Uh, at at the bottom of the screen, and then I'll um uh, I'll pass those questions on uh, to Jim, and we'll, we'll uh, have a bit of a discussion. Um, one question to begin, Jim, uh, which is about you were sort of talking about the ways in which the um you know the, the there was an effort on the part of the film to kind of create uh, a new culture free from imperialism, and uh, there is some sense of success. I was there's a question, sort of wondering to what degree. Well, I guess let me ask this differently. So, how were how were these films received by the people of uh, Burkina Faso? Were these films that were really just for an elite that were looking at them, or were they widely distributed and and uh, and watched? And what was the reception to the kind of new ideas that were in them? Yeah, I mean that's a good question uh, and an important one. One that was critical uh, to Sankara and the revolutionaries. They insisted uh, that the festival be a public mass event. Uh, and so they created a lot of improvised theaters and screening spaces across Ouagadougou and around the country. Uh, they encouraged the public to come in and watch these films, but not only watch them, but critique them and also learn how to make films. Uh, so that was part of the workshops. They said, you know, that this needs to be a mass enterprise. Uh, in addition to the film festivals, the revolutionary government held what were called National Weeks of Culture, uh, which were usually every December. Uh, from 1980, uh, starting in 83, again in 84, and then 86. Uh, and during those National Weeks of Culture, the whole country was mobilized to become cultural workers, to engage with professionals, but also to see themselves as capable of producing these things. And that was rather unique. I mean, it was a way of saying, yeah, this, these films, which had been pretty much only seen in art cinema or European uh, theaters or at the festival circuit, uh, should be accessible to the people. It's what the filmmakers wanted and were frustrated at through the 70s that they couldn't get the cooperation of their governments to assist that. Uh, and it was essential 
as part of the project of the revolutionary government that this be a mass enterprise, a collaborative enterprise uh, that revealed the creativity that is inherent in everyone. Uh, and they should be, they should feel these films are theirs and that they too can be part of the process of, of creating. Uh, and so, yeah, at least during these festivals, these were mass public events. That's why they staged these marches. And then the filmmakers reciprocated, as I mentioned, by going out and actually laying down rail track, which is not a normal thing that happens at a film festival. <laughs> and so filmmakers from all across Africa are out there uh, hauling out track and helping to assist the government in this project. So it it, it was a kind of unique moment uh, and, and intentional to try and create, change the dynamic. Yeah, I can't imagine watching uh, the folks at the Oscars uh, uh, yeah. going out to, to rail. Yes, uh, steel, to Steven drive. Spielberg uh, driving stakes uh, <laughs> in, in the ground. <laughs> uh, that would be quite a marvelous thing to see. Um, you uh, you mentioned what is just actually quite a remarkable uh, list of of, uh, of areas of focus for change that the revolutionary government brought in with them, you know, particularly kind of ecological or, or climate uh, kind of focus change, economic development, uh, transformation of women's lives and kind of gender questions, uh, and kind of cultural change and identity change um, through film. Um, why is it that they chose those areas to focus on? What was it about each of those areas uh, that was that they thought was particularly important as, as they brought in the revolution? Another good question, because this is it was so unusual. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine back to 1983 and what you know the public international conversations were, but it certainly wasn't primarily focused on climate change, uh, uh, gender equity, you know, the, these kind of things were just not at the forefront. And uh, they focused on these things partly because of the specific experience of Upper Volta uh, during the colonial period, and especially in the 1970s with, you know, the massive deforestation, the relentless advance of the Sahara Desert, which was reaching a crisis point, uh, the disruption that it caused in society, that it, that it wasn't just, uh, you know, a kind of ecological thing, but people were forced from their homes. This put strains on the infrastructure, which was already poorly developed to begin with. Uh, it jeopardized lives, it jeopardized the stability of society. Uh, and so uh, that had to be any development project. And they also were looking at the lessons of, of what had come in the previous decades of countries that had attempted various development schemes. And they've been overly focused on imitating external models. And this was a big part of the Burkinabi revolution is that they were not going to imitate anyone. They insisted on developing on their uh, with their own means on their own terms, according to what they needed. And they looked at those other projects, giant dam construction, massive heavy industry investment um, that didn't pan out. It, it didn't benefit the population and, and the governments usually became corrupt. And they said, you know, this is, we need a development that serves the people. Uh, and so they, the way they constructed these programs often was that they solicited feedback from the CDR in all the local areas and said, what do you need? What are the things that concern you? And then what role the state can play? So rather than a top-down approach, they tried very hard uh, to make it a bottom-up approach. And what kept surfacing is these issues of the problem of climate and agriculture, some largely agricultural country, uh, deeply impacted by that. Uh, the need for infrastructure and investment and things like drinking water and, and irrigation for agriculture. These were critical issues to the population. Gender was, was a big issue because, especially among the women who were finally given a voice to say, you know, this is, you know, we have to be part of development and, and we, you know, our needs and concerns, especially in healthcare, education, and access to employment and leadership, that has to change. Uh, and Sankara had been developing, and his cohort, it wasn't just him, but his, his cohort, had been developing this confluence of ideas through the 70s uh, as they kind of gleaned from experiences from other places, uh, kind of assessed what worked and what didn't. And what made it unique, at least from my perspective, was how conscientious they were in at least attempting to really understand what were the concerns and what would be necessary regardless of whether there was an external model that could be out there. Uh, and it was part of the kind of uniqueness of, of the revolution on the world stage that they refused to explicitly choose sides on the soul on the, in the Cold War, except to declare we have a basic set of principles and morality 
And whoever comports with that and whatever comports with that, we support. But as soon as you don't, we criticize you and we understand the risk, but we're prepared to take the risk because we need to speak truth to power. Uh, and, uh, and so this kind of honesty and at least conscientious effort. I mean, not everything worked. It's not a utopia, clearly. Uh, but, but it was kind of unique. It was a different way of approaching these, these problems. And to raise these issues in the 80s, by the 90s, we're talking about debt cancellation. We're talking about uh, female circumcision uh, and women's rights across Africa. Uh, we're talking about climate and starting the whole climate summits. But that's 10 years after Sankara was already talking about these things. Yeah, it's amazing the degree to which they were, in some ways, a kind of a group ahead of their time uh, in that regard. Um, they do it. I mean, these tree planting and things. I mean, these are all the kinds of things that later would be embraced as strategies, you know, relying on locally sourced and sustainable agriculture to hold these courses where peasants would be given classes in basically sustainable agriculture and ecological management. I mean, this is the mid 80s. This is, mm -hmm. you know, even the terminology and the language used would later be the language of the environmental movements. Yeah, and, and did did this kind of massive wave of attempted change kind of in the mid-1980s, how did it survive kind of post-Sankara? Uh, after his assassination, did they continue on? Yeah, that's, that's the tragedy. I mean, the falling out between Compiorium is a whole long intrigue that could be a multi-part you know, documentary and involving cloak and dagger and various foreign powers. But uh, the falling out was was horrible, and you know Sankara was murdered along with uh, about a dozen other uh, of his presidential secretariat. Others were imprisoned. Uh, you know, uh, within months the CDR were dismantled uh, by Compiori. Um, he began immediately negotiating a new loan with the International Monetary Fund, something that Sankara refused to do. And the interesting thing on that is not only did he refuse to accept money, but all through the period, he continued to make payments on the existing debt to the IMF uh, because he said, well, yeah, we didn't incur this, but it's, a, it's our obligation and we'll pay you, but we're not going to take your terms. Well, Compaori immediately went to the IMF, took out the loan. Uh, he got enmeshed in the Liberian Civil War. With Charles Taylor, uh, it became it, it was just a mess. And within two years, he had actually killed the other two members of the four historic leaders of the revolution, accusing them of a coup plot. And by the '90s, Burkina Faso was was a mess. It was massively in debt. Most of the programs had been abandoned, uh, and so not much survived. But in film, I mean, that was why I emphasize that as an enduring impact. Um, through the changes done to African cinema and the institutions around African cinema, those not only survived, but were embraced uh, and then acknowledged uh, when they were finally able to do so after Campori was overthrown. Uh, and among the people, uh, when Campiori was overthrown, the people in the streets demonstrating were wearing shirts with Sankara's image, holding up placards with slogans and, and statements from his speeches. Uh, and so, and these were people who were all born way after he had been killed. And it showed that even his ideas, even if the programs were gone, there was a sense of these things are possible. They're necessary and they're also possible. And we, a very tiny country with limited resources, were able to achieve some of these things and demonstrate to the world the possibility if we just have a commitment to it. And that idea survives, you know, regardless of what had happened after. And I think that's another legacy in the people's mentality. There is, you know, a model that, you know, since they weren't going to borrow a model, they actually produced a model that that says this stuff works. We we can do these things. Right. That's and the legacies seem quite remarkable. Um, just speaking about the the legacy in in, in film and cinema, uh, we have a couple of questions uh, that I'll give to you together, which are both kind of uh, focusing on uh, focusing in on aspects of uh, of the film question. Um, the first, and so yeah, I'll give them both to you. Uh, one, one is, um, was the focus on film as a vehicle of cultural revolution in uh, in Burkina Faso an internet, uh, sorry, an intentional choice to distinguish Fespaki from other Pan-African cultural festivals during this period? So that's one question. And then the second is, which I think is sort of related. Um, but in an age uh, of, uh, of such accessibility to digital content with smartphones democratizing access to content creation, do you think it would be possible for film or cinema uh, to foster such a widespread uh, culture-making movement again in Burkina Faso or anywhere uh, in West Africa or Africa? 
two really good uh, questions. Uh, so the focus on film, yes, was intentional. Um, this, uh, it was a real wave, you know, African film essentially is invented in the 1960s and, and the filmmakers have been very active. Uh, Upper Volta, which became Burkina Faso was kind of accidentally the nexus of this whole conversation around the role of film in Africa's post-colonial development. Uh, when that fight, it was basically a fight over tax revenue. Lamizana wanted to raise taxes on box office receipts uh, to help pay public salaries. That, <laughs> and it wound up being this whole thing that ended with the nationalization of the theater infrastructure, which is what filmmakers wanted. Uh, and the year before that, the French cultural the cultural emissary had actually was the one who started the film festival in 69 because the French were very eager to maintain West Africa as a market for French films or at least control uh, cinematic production because this was very important for them. And so that's where the festival grew out. La Mizana basically took that over and, and institutionalized it as this formal festival in 72. So, so the country uh, more than 10 years before the revolution had already accidentally become kind of the anchor of African cinema and, and film had become very important as part of the national story and filmmakers were responding to that positively. And Sankara growing up as, as a young man, remember he's 33 when he takes power in 1983. So, you know, he's a young man in his early twenties when, when these events are taking place around film and, and there's all this effervescence and excitement. And uh, there was a real sense in that period that that film could be used as a means to reach a largely oral culture, largely rural culture. And here there was modeling. The modeling was the Soviet Union in the 1920s and cinema on wheels. And they looked at that as a success for propagating ideas and mobilizing people behind development projects. And so, uh, so there was a, a model there. And so, yeah, this was quite intentional. Um, the fact that he did his public resignation as Minister of Information over the radio during the meeting, planning meeting for the next film festival, in 1982, uh, you know, he was there among the filmmakers and, and deeply involved in planning the festival. Uh, so by the time of the revolution, there's there's already that commitment. This is a means. Now, as for the other question, that, that really is uh, a, a question of major importance in the global cinematic universe of what does it mean to make film? What counts as a film? What counts as, as cinema? Uh, as an art uh, in the current age with cell phones and other technologies. Um, and, you know, there are, there are big splits. Um, you know, there are some who are pushing uh, for a more kind of classic definition of, of the cinema and a film as an art, as, as a technical enterprise. Uh, but others who push and say, well, this is about democratization. Technology democratizes access. And so isn't this what we want anyhow? Uh, but then there's concern about quality and messaging, and a lot of that is self-promotion and commercial. Um, this was the dispute already in the 80s and 90s over straight-to-video film, Nollywood, right? and, and the challenge of uh, Nollywood to formal cinema of actually making a motion picture. And so, so it's not a new issue, it's just the technology has continued to advance. And I, I don't know, I, I really don't know the answer uh, to that dispute or whether or not film can play that kind of role anymore because at least from where I see it's a saturated media environment. I mean, how do you cut through these kind of projects of the of the 80s required a very concerted effort uh, and concentrated effort on the part of people and, and through specific means and I don't know how you get that now with these new technologies. How do you cut through uh, to produce something that has an intentional outcome, right? How do you even get oxygen? <laughs> How do you get airspace? How do you get viewership? I mean, it just, I don't know. And the theater infrastructure across Africa has been decimated uh, for a variety of reasons uh, over the past several decades. Uh, and so it's, even that's not the same. Even if you had uh, wide distribution of cinema, the spaces for viewing are just not there the way they were before. So, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a really good question and I'm not sure what can be done at this point in that school. It is indeed, and and perhaps time will tell uh, as uh, in terms of how this will uh, how that will play out. Um, like no, the TikTok in the United States, right? So like, <laughs> clearly, there are some who think the Chinese are after us through TikTok, but is that really is that <laughs> and to what end? 
No, and with each new media, there are new opportunities and uh, exactly new tensions, that is for sure. Um, as so often happens when we have marvelous guests here, time has flown. Uh, we've kind of come to the end of, uh, of our hour. Uh, I want to thank you all very much for, for joining us today, for your excellent questions. I'm especially grateful uh, to James Genova for sharing his expertise uh, and his passion for, for African history, uh, for, uh, for film history. Uh, please join me in giving him a virtual round of applause. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Alex Stacklane, uh, the Department of History, the Goldberg Center uh, at, at The Ohio State University, uh, and Origins Current Events and Historical Perspective uh, for their support. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Uh, stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Goodbye.